All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. This is your host, Tom Alemo. They call me Tommy Tahoe. Uh, we're at episode 206. Um, real quick before the show, uh, if you find any value in what we're doing here, uh, please get over to Apple. You can hit subscribe, leave a five-star review. That's what helps me grow the show, get better guests, create better content for you. Uh, you can also hit me up on LinkedIn at Tom Alemo. I am at Tommy Tahoe on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as well. So feel free to contact me. I love chatting with people about the show. This week's guest is uh, none other than uh, Ray Carroll. So Ray's got a great background. Um, you know, pulling and pulling it up here. Uh, you know, at, at a few different uh, startups, his real claim to fame was getting in very early. One of the first sales hires at Marketo when they were, you know, about a million dollars ARR, uh, helped to bring them all the way up to about 250 million uh, of ARR, uh, going from, you know, uh, entry-level salesperson as an AE, uh, up to sales manager, up to the AVP level, you know, working with, you know, thousands and thousands of customers of theirs and going through, uh, you know, a crazy streak that led to an IPO, ultimately led to the acquisition from Adobe which was multi-billions of dollars. So we talk about, you know, a lot of the conversations about that rocket ship. Um, you know, Ray went over to Engageo where he was the VP of sales. Uh, he was the VP of sales over at Skilljar, um, actually recruited me over there. We worked for a short period of time, kind of ships in the night, so to speak, uh, for a little bit there. And right now he is, um, you know, doing some consulting work and uh, is also an, an LP at the go-to-market fund, the GTM fund that Max Altshuler runs. So, um, God, we talk about a lot of great stuff. We talk about Ray's early days uh, as a salesperson, uh, you know, how he got into sales, what drove him earlier. You know, for him, it was a lot of, um, you know, uh, financial upside. But, you know, let's call it like it is as a salesperson, trying to make money. Uh, living in the Bay Area and, you know, super hungry, super driven and, um, you know, really talk about guts in sales. That's one of the, the the key points, you know, not being afraid to ask the tough question, not being afraid to have that conversation, to push the envelope, to try to push a deal forward. And uh, we get to that as well. So uh, without further ado, I am going to stop talking and let's get into my great outstanding conversation with Ray Carroll. Let's go. All right, Ray Carroll, welcome to Millennial Sales. How we doing? Tom, I am jazzed to be here. Um, and I am a, I am millennial myself. So uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate this, this group in the world. Excited Are you? Are you I in am. the age range? <laughs> it's the, I'm right at the cutoff. You know, I don't know what comes, um, I don't know what comes before millennial, but I'm like, a, I'm an old millennial. I'm an old okay. millennial. Yeah. Okay, I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Um, you know, I felt like we were two ships kind of passing in the night in 2020 and was jazzed up to work with you. And uh, it didn't quite work out, but I'm, I'm excited to be here today chatting with you and, and continuing to learn from you. So thanks for taking some time this evening. Totally. I, I love what you're doing with the show and um, kind of how you're helping, you know, other mid earlier stage sales reps in their career. And I was one of those not that long ago. So yeah. I'm definitely jazzed to share some of the things I've learned, the good, the bad, the ugly. And, uh, you know, you can hit me with what you want, Tom. Don't be shy. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do it, man. Let's do it. So 
I want to get to, you know, some of maybe like the sexier stories of maybe Marketo and some of the things in your career, but I'd love to focus for at least a bit on the early part of your career. Like it looks like you went straight from college, you know, straight into sales. Um, and when I talk with you, like, it's very clear that you were, you were meant to be a salesperson, right? You're, you're very extroverted. You have high energy, you ask direct questions. You're very personable. So I'm curious, like, was that always on the mind uh, in college or growing up? Like, do you have parents in, in sales or was that yeah. just like a, a guaranteed thing for you? Sure. Um, you know, I think in high school, uh, yeah, I went to I went to a high school in Eastern uh, in the East Bay called De La Salle, which was a big sports school, big football school. And I was always into sports and, you know, kind of known as the as the hustler and the, and the guy that was always figuring out ways to make a buck. And I was good at sports. But like De La Salle, you had to be the best at sports. And so I kind of wasn't able to hang with that crowd, like playing practice and everything. But I kind of carved out a little niche for myself, like running football pools and, and doing all this stuff that was yeah. fun. Um, and there was always like a, an angle of money or something to it. Um, but I actually wasn't planning to be in sales when I graduated. So I went to I went to St. Mary's College in the East Bay in California. And I started off as a business major, but I was bored from business. Like I wasn't interested in like the financial statements and all that other stuff. And so I switched majors my junior year, got into communications. And I wanted to be an on-air television broadcaster, kind of like Bob Costas. Yeah. Um, but then I realized, so I, so I ended up getting a job working for the Oakland Raiders in television production in kind of the back office of television production. So like taking B-roll and um, interviewing players and, and putting segments together. But then I realized that I didn't really have a lot of interpersonal action. And to your point, I am a bit more extroverted. I needed that. And then I also realized that if I wanted to be an on-air talent, I was gonna have to grind my way to you know, covering you know, high school volleyball in Connecticut mm -hmm. to then covering, you know, college lacrosse in Indiana. And then maybe 25 years later, I could actually get into a segment where I could be somebody. And at the time I was dating someone that's now my wife and we wanted to go do nice things. And we lived in the Silicon Valley. And so I kind of just realized that wasn't going to be the path. And I got into sales at that point, working for an event planning company. But so I think, I think if you ask people that knew me in high school or late elementary school, they probably would have been like, yep, you know, raise more of a sales guy, but I took a, I took a, a, a telemarketing job, an inside sales job when I was a freshman in college working for an insurance company. Hmm. And I didn't like it uh, because I, I didn't really understand what I was selling. That was the key reason. Like I was calling up business owners and talking to them about their property and casualty insurance, which is not a very exciting topic, but I didn't really understand what I was even selling. And I think that was my issue. Uh, so once I started to understand what I was selling and actually be passionate about it, then I realized like this is pretty natural. Yeah. And and did you take to it pretty easily after college? Like, were you seeing some pretty early on success? Yeah. And I also was put in a situation where I could learn and fail and nobody would care. Mm -hmm. So I was I was 23 years old working at an event company called Planet Interactive. And we did... Um, corporate events for big companies. So I would go call on Yahoo and Google and um, you know all these hot companies 
and bring them like the entertainment at their corporate events. So if you were doing a holiday party, I would sell you a bunch of casino tables and stuff. And so I had a door to my office back when we were in offices and I could shut my door and make a bunch of cold calls and get rejected by gatekeepers and call Google and say, hey, I wanna talk to the person who handles your company event. And they'd send me like right to the general voicemail, which would stink. But I just developed this fearlessness because I wasn't scared of being rejected. And then I got really good because as, as a lot of your audience probably knows, when you don't care about whether or not you win or you lose the call, or you figure out ways that even if you're getting rejected, you're still winning the call, mm -hmm. then it becomes fun. But that's definitely a game you have to play with yourself to get into the rhythm. Because mm -hmm. if you don't do that and you take every rejection super seriously, you will become miserable. And then you will not be good at selling anything, let alone yourself. So like, you, like I was able to put myself in an environment, Tom, where I could focus on mindset, fearlessness, and just getting after it. And because no one was around me and because I could just fail and no one would care, um, that, that developed a confidence that has definitely helped me in my career. Yeah, I mean, you have that, the growth mindset that we talk about a lot on this show and that fearlessness. Like, again, was that, um, like, did you have people that had to teach you that? Was there a, an early influence of a book or uh, anything like that? Or is that just like, you know, hey, we, I learned that in school, at, you know, playing sports and th that's how it was ingrained in me. And that was just yeah. kind of my mantra as, as one of those guys that was a grinder. Like, that's how I feel um, also, uh -huh. you know, combination of all of them, but I've always felt like kind of that grinder that always had to work a little bit harder than other people. Um, perhaps, you know, I, I think there was a, a number of different things. I'll culminate it all in one thing, which I would kind of classify as what I call burning the ships behind you. Mm -hmm. and, and, and putting yourself in a situation where you have to be motivated. But I think I, I would answer yes to a lot of what you just said. So one, like I did play a lot of team sports and a lot of great lessons around teamwork and winning and all that other stuff get ingrained in you there. So I probably picked it up there. Um, I also, I don't know if you've read the book Outliers, but I was a young, um, I was a young person for my age. So like when I was in third grade, I was one of the younger people in third grade. And I have a theory that that always like pushes you that you've got to be sharper or better uh, than others because you might not be physically as, as far along. Like I'm not the tallest guy in the world. So that was always something that I think made it so I needed to be sharper somewhere else. Mm. But, um, you know, and then, and then, yes, I would also read and, and um, like, I want to consume information, but for me, I think the biggest thing that made me driven is I put myself in a situation where I had no ch no choice but to work my tail off to be successful. And I when I yep. say that is, you know, I got married young. My wife and I have been married 12 years now. We've got three kids, but I I met her in college and we could just tell she wasn't really going to work. And it's not that I mean, she works her butt off right now, raising three kids a lot harder than what you and I do, trust me. <laughs> but um, she wasn't someone that like was super ambitious, but if we were going to stay and be in the Silicon Valley, I had to find a way. And it wasn't good. I, we weren't gonna be able to live a good life grinding it out for you know $50,000 a year somewhere. I was gonna have to go and get really good. And at when you're in your early twenties, 
if you're not like, you know, from Yale or Super Ivy League, which I'm not, I'm more street smart than intellectually smart, the best place to go is going to tech sales. And if you get good at that and you pay your dues and you hustle and you work hard consistently, you will make a lot more money than your than your peers than your friends. And uh, that's the path that I kind of fell in love with. I also got lucky. I would say, and that um, I got a chance to work with really talented people early. And, you know, although, you know, what I'd classify as kind of my big, my big um, coming out party from a career perspective was getting in early at Marketo and going on an IP around there. It wasn't my first startup. It was my second. But at my first startup, um, I did have a lot of success there, too. So then I walked into a hot company with some swagger because I knew I could sell a product that didn't even have a brand or market momentum and Marketo was right at the cusp of when we were taken off. Yeah. I want to get straight into Marketo, right? At least from your LinkedIn, it looks like you came in at about a million ARR, uh, rode it through the IPO to about, you know, they were at 250 million ARR and you rose from individual contributor to manager, to director, to AVP, right? So you had a huge impact on, you know, probably hundreds of people at the company as well as probably hundreds or thousands of customers, uh, for the organization. So like for the people that are listening that have not been part of such a meteor, uh, meteoric rise like that, like, what was that like? Like, what was it like being around those people and going through that level of hyper growth? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I can't say that. I mean, so the reason I took the Marketo gig is I actually had, I was selling a similar product um, at a company called genius.com that got bought by Calidus. And I was, I was talking to a guy and he, he, I, I, you know, he was working at a company, uh, Aster Data Systems. And he said to me, you know, Ray, I'd rather buy from you. I like you more. You seem like a good dude. But these guys at Marketo, they got you beat, buddy. Product's a lot better than what you're selling at Genius. And, uh, you know, very candid. Um, and, uh, right when I heard that, I was like, you know what, I'm on the wrong ship. Cause I'd heard Marketo was kind of coming up the, uh, you know, kind of an earlier stage and right down the street from us. So I was working in San Mateo and then Marketo was like right down the street. I was also living in San Mateo. I just bought my first house and I said, okay, I'm getting some grapes on the vine are telling me that this place is probably going to be better long-term. How often do I have the chance to get in early? at a place that's five minutes from my house um, and also selling a product that I was pretty familiar with. And so let's be real. I had no idea what like going IPO or making money on equity or any of that stuff even meant, but I knew that I could go and make some money selling software at Marketo. So I did. Um, And uh, you know, the, I, I did not have to deal with a lot of the, the stuff that makes startups tough there. I will say, I doubt I'll ever have better timing on anything in my life. And that, you know, because I've been at a startup where product market fit, it was a fight. It was a grind. And that's not always a picnic. But I walked into Marketo and we were ready to, like, they had figured all that other stuff out. It had been a a tricky couple of years prior to me getting there. But I walked in and we were ready to roll. And so the first, like, six months you know, I was good at what I did, but there was also a lot of market momentum. It, you know, mm-hmm. I remember walking into my boss's office in December 2019 or t- 2009, and we shook our heads at each other because we were both at the same company prior. And we're like, this is shooting fish in a barrel. 
The market's <laughs> there. People are coming. Like we had this great marketing, you know, John Miller, and uh, he was doing amazing marketing. And so it was hot. And so for about a year, right when I joined, like it was almost like you had to be below average to not do, you had to be below average to not do well at Marketo. If you were average, you were still doing pretty well. Uh, and I remember I was one, there were, there was, there were some reps that were really doing outbound and there were some that were just kind of hanging out and still doing well. And the ones that were doing outbound were doing like 300% of plan. We had hundred K hundred K quotas for the month. And I remember in like December, uh, 2009, I did $325,000 in a month, uh, on hundred K quota, which was monster. And, uh, so it was really good. It was really good. Now, then as the years go by, more competition comes in, you know, Eloquist starts getting crazy on reducing their price. Pardot comes in a lower price point. Hubstock gets stronger. You know, it, it evens out, right? So as a seller, you can't always look for like those lightning in the bottle rolls and expect that it's going to last like that forever. But mm -hmm. what I am saying is sometimes you either land somewhere and you're in the middle of that, or you go somewhere and you feel it take off. Just don't expect that to last forever. It, it can't. Right. But it is good when you get the wind behind your back for a while. And uh, there is, there's nothing better than selling in that environment. It's fun. I love it. I love the sound of it. So I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, as you're going through that trajectory at Marketo, right, we, we talked about the different levels that you hit in your career and a conversation that I have with a lot of people around my age, they're mid late 20s. They've been in sales for, you know, maybe five, eight years. So thinking about the career path. Right. And they start thinking, where is this going? You know, like, am I going to do I want to be the top enterprise AE at Salesforce and try to sell to Bank of America? Or do I want to be the VP of sales CRO at, you know, the next Marketo, the next hot startup? Or do I want yep. maybe something completely different? But maybe it's one of those two is like if you're into sales and you're into SaaS, you probably want to be really good, either a really good salesperson or a really good leader. Like, could you walk me through? how you made that decision, then maybe how you mentor and coach other people to yeah, go down yeah, that Yeah, you're path. talking about kind of the fork. There's also a fork I see, and we won't talk about this one, but like, you know, you've got a, a really good SDR leader that's trying to figure out what do they do next, right? It's mm. a very similar type fork. Um, so, you know, I got in at Marketo early enough where we didn't have any segmentation on the business. So I got a chance to work bigger deals as well for about a year and learned, um, you know, the more complex sales motion. Like to this day, I'm not an expert, like big, big enterprise, like $5 million lands, like I could do them, but I'm not an expert. But I would say, so look, like I think in the, I think, I think in the early nineties, it, it software companies like Oracle, it was like, you have to go to the field. Like you must go to the field. And like, you're, you're, a, you're a lesser person if you don't go to the field. But that was like back in the days of on-premise, like you were doing a lot of million dollar lands. There wasn't a cloud SaaS model that Benioff brought and kind of changed the world on or changed the, the software landscape on. And so with the rise of subscription, you know, you're getting million dollar customers mostly on a land and expand type play. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might argue that the days of big, big enterprise, unless you're Palantir or Workday or C3, like there's not that many of those pure, pure play, big, big enterprise. 
Um, you know, even even the enterprise reps at you know good companies now they might land with a two hundred thousand dollar deal. Like that's not an enormous deal, but it will be if you expand it. However, that being said, you've got it. Like, look, I I've been in everybody here's shoes. I still am to some degree, and that is, you know, we're always looking for the next thing. You know, what's next? How do we? You know, we're never satisfied. What's next? So the first thing I would ask yourself is just like, are you are you even interested? in doing what enterprise sales is, or are you interested in doing what management is? I'd argue that a lot of people are just like, I wanna be a manager, but they wanna be a manager because it's perceived as growth versus actually wanting to be a manager. So the first exercise is talking to people that are in those roles now, learning about them and and asking yourself, do, do do your interests map to that? So for example, if you are, if if you're thinking about, okay, do I want to go up market and join, like, and be one of the early reps, like, pay me out the enterprise, or go to a bigger company and sell bigger deals? Well, then I got a couple questions for you. Do you do you have good? Do you have a lot of patience? Are you okay waiting a while to hear the the quarters in your piggy bank? Um, you know, that's important. You've got to be patient. You know, selling in the enterprise. Do you like solving complex problems? Like, do you like lots of moving parts uh, and balancing lots of different things that could be in flight? I think that's also important. And then also, do you like building deep relationships, really getting to know someone or something and, and being comfortable interacting with that person or group of people for a very long time? Yeah. Those are things that I think a really good enterprise seller um, they 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 flock to those things. On the other side, um, you know, let's think about management. Well, um, are you someone that can easily trust other people? Because that's often what a manager is. You're winning based on the output of your organization. Do you? Um, let's think. Do you? Can you manage yourself? You know, are you running a day to day process for Tom? that is consistent, is predictable, is repeatable, you know, or are you rolling in, uh, especially right now, remote work, maybe you're rolling in and, uh, you know, you had a few too too many drinks the night prior, like that's probably not going to be indicative of great manager. And so you have to be honest with yourself on which path you want to take. And so, you know, then based on that, you work to ultimately take that, take that path. Now, what I would say is signs you're ready. So if you want to be a manager, let me tell you signs that you might be ready for that. One is you're having success in the role you're doing today. You know, it's unlikely that a bottom tier performer is going to become a manager. Sure. You don't have to be the best, but you need to be someone that people will consider to be a successful rep at the job that you're in. I think that the other is do your peers come to you proactively for advice, not do you barf your advice unasked for in a group <laughs> meeting and people are trying to turn you down, but will someone come up to you and be like, you know, hey, Tom, what do you think I should do here? That's always a very good sign. Um, you know, are you okay making a mate perhaps a little less money if mm. maybe you hit a rough patch or you have a hire that quits or whatever, because that can happen. Um, I think those are all questions. If, if you can answer, if you answer favorably to all those, you're probably on the right path. Now, if you 
will freak out at the slightest reduction of your W-2. I don't know, maybe you're not ready. If you um, aren't good at outbound or you can't communicate to others why you're a standout, that's not a great sign either. So those, that's kind of a framework I would, I would ultimately think about as you, as you size up, it's right. But the main thing is don't chase the, hey, I'm, I've moved up to the next rung of the ladder. Chase what's right for you. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's getting to know yourself, what it is. You know, think of like the end game, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, where is it that you might want to be and where are you going to be, you know, happiest, most successful, like what fits your skill set? And uh, what you said early, you know, maybe a few minutes ago was go talk to people, right? Like if, if you want to be a VP of sales, maybe someone should talk to you about that. Uh, if you want to be a, a great enterprise rep, then maybe go search that person out at your company or a big company that, you know, has, has a really great track record and try to figure out what the day, not like the hot, not like the hot stuff about, you know, getting a funding round or like, you know, recruiting, you know, the, the top talent, but like the day-to-day, the hard stuff, the grind, uh, people quitting, or if you're a rep, you know, losing the deal that you've been working on for nine months and be ready to, uh, to take on the worst parts of the job too. That, that's another thing I'm hearing from you. Yeah. It's not all, every job has crap to it. You know, yeah. um, we know that there's some stuff about an SDR's job that, that's hard. There's stuff about an E's job that's hard, but believe me, there's stuff about a sales manager, VP of sales, CEO. I mean, heck, the CEO job, if you're the CEO of a very, very average company, that is not a fun job because you got everybody underneath you trying to grow and you're like, I got, we're not growing. That becomes tough. That becomes yeah. tough. Everything's got its warts. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, you mentioned early on in the conversation that, you know, one of the reasons that you were driven to sales or that it was a good fit was that you're fearless. I can attest to that. I've heard you on calls before uh, of just being able to ask direct questions and and really just do what you need to do to get the job done. Like, I feel like you don't leave uh, questions unanswered on a call uh, from what I've seen on you, right? Yeah. And I, you don't want to have any regrets. So I'd love to hear if you have any deals or you have any moments that uh, you really succeeded, but but it took guts to get there. Like it took mm. having to do something out of the ordinary or asking an uncomfortable question or doing something that maybe uh, the average rep or, or leader, uh, depending on the situation, yeah. might not do. Sales guts, I love, I love seeing sales guts in action. Like mm. when people are willing to reframe something you say, but they say it in a respectful way. So like a, a line that I've had is, and I like to instill is, how can I build an organization where we'll press with finesse? So like we're willing to ask the tough questions, but we do it in a way where it's not like Uber in your face. And it's more like we're we're going to ask the tough question because we're doing you a disservice if we don't. Um, so that's something that that I that I that I think about um, in that vein. Um, and I may I may have lost a little where. where so, so that's a piece of advice that I give around developing that fearlessness. The other thing is like you've got to believe that you're, what you're about to say is extremely valuable and you've got to project that confidence to the other side. Because if you say something you know, really smart, but you say it in a weak way using weak words, like, do you think that we could maybe talk about if, yeah. you know, like that's not going to get you anywhere. So do you have right. the presence, you know, so you've got to have that confidence to ask the hard questions 
And again, your mind needs to be like, if I don't ask you this, I know for the good of what you're trying to accomplish, I may cost you a week or I may put you in a spot where you can't get the best possible deal or the best possible terms. So like you owe it to them to ask the hard questions. And oftentimes, you know, the best reps lose deals fast. Yeah. Do you know who gets second place in a, in a million dollar big enterprise deal with an RFP? The one that figures out right away they ain't going to win that business or it's wired for somebody else and they get the hell out fast mm-hmm. before they go and burn through all their company's resources because they're just fodder to begin with. So mm-hmm. like, you know, figuring out losing fast is a very underrated skill uh, as a seller. If you can figure out ways to lose quickly, that's good. Good. You don't yeah, want to lose, but if you know you're going to, and you can figure that out faster than everybody else. You get that time back, put it towards more qualified prospects. Yeah, and part of that's you know whether it's an RFP or a normal call, like trying to disqualify or or qualify, however you want to phrase it, folks, early on in the process, right? And I feel like it's kind of that crutch to reps that maybe young reps or just any rep that is having a rough time, you know, struggling to get a deal. They have low pipeline they'll take anything in there. And like, you know, I'll, I'll raise my hand. I've done that before where you just try to force a deal because, you know, it has a big dollar sign on it or you are struggling in pipeline or man, it'd be a good logo for the company or whatever it might be. But uh, you know, eight out of 10 times you don't get the deal. And the two that you do, they become the biggest headache that you've ever had because you forced it. And then the yep. customer's calling to complain because, you know, it may not have been the best fit or, whatever the case may be. So I feel like, uh, you know, opportunity selection is a really underrated skill. Well, you've used the term, you know, you're right. And then I do see it. I saw a lot of it this year, right. With uh, pipeline be a little bit harder to come by and just, but every industry uh, people be a little more resistant to maybe outbound meetings and such. And um, what, what, what I would say is the biggest medicine against forcing it is having a healthy pipeline to begin with. It's so much easier to um, hold maybe weaker leads or early ops accountable than when you've got other good stuff in play than if you don't. So then the message there is even when things are good, how are you ensuring that you're getting the rest of the foundation in place so that when things aren't good, you're not in a position of weakness? You know, and so when I was at Marketo, even when we were doing extremely well, I was booking two hours of outbound first thing in the morning and uh, right in the evening, I would do like another hour and I was getting good at it. I was getting, I was practicing the pitch and I was filling the pipeline for even when we went and doubled the sales team, I was still going to have enough to eat and to do well. Um, And I think that's, that's underrated. Um, You know, I, I think the phone is, is, it's not dead, but it's definitely not used as much as it was when I was growing up. And yeah. even getting rejected on the phone, it it does something else, which is make you not scared of rejection, which does a lot for your interpersonal skills in talking to people. Yeah, I had a friend that just got promoted from BDR to AE and was asking for advice. And the, the first thing, really the only thing I said was like, you've got to be the person that still does the outbound activities. You know. Half of your peers, maybe more, are going to stop prospecting. They're not going to call. They're not going to send the emails. They're not going to block time every every morning. To me, that's the biggest thing that you have to keep doing if you're going from an SDR to an AE. 
Um, would you agree with that or, or would you, is, does anything else come to mind? I would, I would agree with that. On? I would agree with that. I mean, like one thing that bothers me a little is, you know, maybe there's the, the, the best, the best account in your territory, best account. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe the manager is checking in. Hey, so what's going on over at, uh, you know, Datadog? Oh, uh, yeah, no, I'm having my SDR. Uh, SDR is going to work on that. They're going to get back to me. It's like, really? Like, it's your best account in the territory. And the way that we're going to work that is we're going to delegate off the best account to the SDR. You can't drop a note to the CEO and try to get passed down. You can't go to the CIO, whoever you're selling to, and invite them to, you know, a dinner that your marketing team's putting on, like personally, like you as the rep. Really? So yes, the, the answer there is uh, I would obviously emphatically agree with you. And uh, and I think it is a good warning because you know a lot of SDRs, by the time they get promoted to AE, they're so done, right? Yeah. They're done with SDR. They're like, you know, I'll do anything other than SDR. But then they're walking in to now an even more pressure-filled job and they think it's going to be a break, but it isn't when you stop. You you just take that and you, you take that those same things you learned. And then you add them to your toolkit and they become like, these are, these are now givens because you learned them in the previous job, but you keep doing them and you don't let them atrophy. If you let them atrophy, then you could plateau. Yeah. And you get into the cycle of death, which is what happened to me in the beginning of my career as a full cycle rep, where you prospect for a few months, you get all this pipeline and you spend all your time closing it. And then once you close all those deals, you look around and you say, oh shit, I haven't had a you know net new meeting in two months because I haven't consistently been doing the, the pipeline. So similar to what you're saying at Marketo, I think having that daily discipline uh, to have time in the morning or in the afternoons, whenever you know you think it works best to always get the outbound motion going, keep it you know a continuous stream. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanna pivot quickly uh, and, and get a few more topics with you before we close out. Um, Going back to the career, right? Um, I think 2020 was a tough year for a lot of people. People were let go. They were, you know, took pay cuts. Uh, they weren't hitting their quotas oftentimes or low W-2s all over the place. So if you weren't at Zoom or Slack or some of these other companies, it was, a, it was a tough year for a lot of reps. So in the sense that maybe people are probably looking for new jobs here at the beginning of the year um, and trying to find their next opportunity. If you were an AE, where would you be looking? Like what type of company, right? And I know we're not all going to hit Marketo as they're about to ramp up and go through the moon, but like yep. what type of company uh, in terms of series or uh, growth indicators would you be looking at to really hit it at the right time? Cool. And just so I can clarify that a bit more to give your audience the right advice, um, are, you, are, are you going at this in the mindset of where can I you know, go in, sell some software and, you know, grow into other roles and progress? Is it just, where can I go and just grind it out at W2 for three years and then think about a new place? Give me a little more context. Is there more than just selling that you you would look at there or not necessarily? Yeah, no, I would say it's probably the first one. Like I'll speak for myself, but I'm looking for Got a it. job, I'm looking for the growth. I'm looking to be surrounded by other, you know, winners, people I can learn from the whole, the whole package Got it. there. Got it. Okay. So on that, if that's the, if that's the prism, my favorite place to be is frankly, and I may be skewed because of the run at Marketo, but I really liked that stage. And I mm-hmm. recommend that stage to, 
to people that are out there. Let me tell you why. And so that stage would be, I think, a good spot for an AE if you want to grow with the company and be, you know, and be seen as someone with success that can be an influential leader. I like, you know, right before series B or right before series C a lot. Probably right before series B, the best. Like coming in as the third rep, fourth rep, fifth rep. It's been somewhat de-risked by the trailblazers before you. And if you're the third or fourth rep, you're now the second tranche. So like what most likely happened is, you know, your CEO was selling the product. They built some momentum. Then they maybe hired a sales leader or just hired like two entrepreneurial reps. They started selling. They had some success. And now they're on to like, you know, more coin operated salespeople. And so the advantage there is you can get in early enough where one, you know, like you're not going to be a millionaire joining as an AE off a startup hits it. But like if the company did really well, you've got a little something there, maybe a down payment on a house over a four to five year window. If the company does really well and you're in early enough to actually reap that. Because once a company is worth a billion dollars, you don't have any more of that. Um, mm-hmm. And then the second thing is, if you do well, your visibility is a lot is a lot more prevalent. You know, your CEO knows who you are if you're rep three and close a fifty k deal. If you if you're rep fifty three and close a fifty k deal, I doubt your CEO knows who you are. And you know, those little things matter when it comes time to who's gonna get that internal promotion, who's gonna get that bump to the field. And mm-hmm. it's easier, I've always liked to be more of a big fish in a small pond than a small fish in a big pond. I went to a small high school, I went to a small elementary school, small college. So that may also be the driver, but um, I like that space a lot. Now what happens though, is that people may join a startup too early, then it burns them for startups forever. You know, yeah, employee nine and the first growth hire at, you know, some seed-backed startup, that's risky. I get it. Um, Sometimes people will join that and be like, oh, no, like that's not startups aren't for me. I'm going to go to somewhere else, you know, Oracle. Um, And I'm not sure they really got the startup experience there, but they think they did. So, um, you know, you don't want to go too early. But I really like the balance of risk reward on right before series B, right before series C. I yeah. like that a lot. Okay. Um, I know that you're, you, you're, you seem good with money. Let's just put it out on the table. I feel like, you know, we've talked about, you know, you want to get into a career where, you know, you could benefit financially as well as other ways. We've talked about, uh, you know, investing and things like that. Uh, you and I in the past. So like, what's your, what would be a top tip that you have for uh, that, again, that, that AE Mid 20s, late 20s, they're starting to hit it pretty big on a W 2. They're starting to get bigger paychecks. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, maybe not quite sure what to do with it. Like, what, what would be a financial tip for those folks? Um, well, it, it, this is also tied to, you know, relationship status, lifestyle, stuff like that. Yeah. But for me, I delayed gratification until I. Um, invested in the house that was going to be a house that I could see my family living in forever, which, and I was probably 32 or 33 when that happened. So, I mean, I, I was, for people that, if they know me and hear this, they'll laugh. Like I was cheap. 
I was cheap. <laughs> I was cheap in my 20s, Tom, like amongst the cheapest that you know. Uh, and I'm not even sure if I would do that all again if I had if I chose a different path. But, you know, like I had met my person um, and I knew, um, you know, how we needed to get there. And so I didn't need to go out and buy the super nice car and the super nice watch and the expensive jeans and, you know, go to the bars every night. I didn't need to do that. And so that allowed me to kind of delay gratification. It's almost like that that cookie experiment where they give a kid a cookie. Yeah. They're like, if you wait 10 minutes, you could have two cookies. Yeah. Uh, I was good at waiting the 10 minutes. Yeah. And, and, and because I waited those 10 minutes, now I'm in a spot where I'm a little more comfortable and now I'm not as cheap, but I was very cheap before that. But, you know, I think my biggest fear would always just, is always like, you know, fear of one day, and I got family, three kids, private schools, big mortgage, all that stuff. I think my fear has always been like one day, what if I couldn't afford to do all those things? And that, that mm. motivates me, but I protected myself earlier in my career to give myself extra cushion later. And uh, I'm glad I did. Although I also am someone that frankly does like reps that are spending money because they have more bills and they also create more urgency. Um, so again, I think because I started, you know, I, 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 I found my partner young, uh, that also played into that. So that's not necessarily the formula for everybody, but, you know, if you do get married young and you're happy, like, you don't need to spend as much to be fulfilled as you might, if you're, you know, thinking about, um, other stuff, you know, as you, as you navigate your, your twenties. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's, uh, I'd say that's my, uh, normal stance too is pretty stingy and so you know when I moved in with my girlfriend last year you know we're decorating the place and she's picking out a chair I'm like that chair costs that much money are you kidding 88 dollars 215 dollars it's all adding up yeah when you do the monthly uh credit card look I mean it certainly does um but yeah that's that's good that's good advice um so maybe maybe one or two last questions here for you um in addition to some of the money stuff I I see that you're you seem to be an early adopter to a lot of technologies and, and not even just talking about software. Like, you know, I think you do the tonal or, you know, the Peloton and some of those things I felt like you were early on. Uh, so whether it's sales or finance or, you know, uh, something for your home, like, are there any underrated technologies that you've been using or that you have your eye on or that you think is interesting for people? I'm just, I'm just mm. kind of curious where your head's at with that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do think that you're you're right, and that if you think about Jeffrey's Jeffrey Moore's technology adoption curve, you've got the innovators, yep. the early adopters, the early majority. I'm on the innovator side, but really because it's a hobby, and that is either a good thing or a bad thing the way you look at it. You know, some people like to go rock climbing, and some people like to draw art, and some people like to uh, go skiing. I like to learn about early stage tech. It's fun to me. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse because some people might consider that to be work, but because it is tech related, but I enjoy it. I, it, it's fulfilling for me. So that's, that's one component in terms of stuff. Um, I, you know, I try a lot of stuff now. Um, I just tried a, I think they call it an aperitif drink called house H U S Okay. Uh, my, my buddy, uh, Chris Pope recommended it to me and, uh, I actually found out he never even tried it. He just saw like an Instagram ad or something <laughs> for it, but you know, it's like an out, it's like, a, it's like a wine slash cocktail. That's good for like the summer for, 
for get-togethers. Obviously, we're having so many get-togethers right now. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so that was interesting. You did mention the tonal, which is like Peloton, but only for weightlifting, which uh, is great if you don't want to go to a gym, which I don't want to. But, you know, other people may need, like, the the interaction and community that goes to a gym. Um, the Nintendo Switch, when I got that a few years ago, man, like, that was a excellent buy. Um, and, you know, Kate, one thing that I'm into right now that's cheap, 30 bucks a year, is obviously I watched Queen's Gambit and mm-hmm. uh, got excited about chess. And that chess app for 30 bucks a year is a good app. Mm. Like, that's I'm, a good I'm app. learning how to play too. Yeah, that's a good app. Uh, and it's $30 and you can like, uh, they put puzzles together for you. You can play anybody in the world. You know, you can kind of multitask while you're, you know, watching a show or something. Um, so I, I, I like that app. I bet I would love to see their engagement charts. I bet they're nuts after Queen's Gambit. I bet. We got to play. Hey, I'm ga- <laughs> I, 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 you'll have to figure out if you could like find, I, I didn't know that you could find someone online, but if you can hit me up, I'll play. Them. Yeah, I, I don't have the app, but I, I started, I was, I watched Queen's Gambit. And then I got a chessboard for Christmas and I was playing yep. with my sister. And now I'm like, I'm kind of, I got the, I just have a free app, but um, it's one of those things that you can just get hooked on. And it's, it's a very addicting game. It's a great game. It's a great game. I, I, and obviously with the pandemic, more people are looking for entertainment, board games, video games and stuff. Yeah. I can, I could see chess making a big comeback. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the timing of the Queen's Gambit is going to, we'll look back and say that was super, super, um, I guess, applicable to its growth. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, all right, so as we're wrapping up here, Ray, um, I loved having you on the show. Uh, great insights. We really covered all over the board. Um, AEs, managers, you know, financial advice, uh, tech tips. Uh, you know, maybe before we talk about where folks can find you and hit you up, maybe any last tips for uh, those sellers out there. Again, we're kicking off our years. We're looking to make a big splash make up for some, uh, you know, shortages that we might've had in 2020. So any last tips that you have for the audience? And yeah, then, uh, where I'd can say, find yeah, you? I, I do. I do. Um, make sure that you love what you're selling as you enter this new year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last year may have been tough and, you know, there's some situations where maybe last year you look in the, you look in the, uh, the, the, the windshield and it probably is going to be the same. And if that's the case, you either have to just own that and you know put your head down and do the best work you can or do something about it. But don't go be an indentured servant if your head is not in the game. Life's too short. And you don't, you know, maybe you get away with doing it for three, four months in the face of a pandemic. But if you let that three, four months become 18 months, now all of a sudden you found yourself plateaued, you're not as sharp, you're not as enthused. So like you gotta love what you sell. And use the new year as an opportunity to get yourself there. And if it's if you're not excited because your boss or your team or your company isn't doing a good job of getting you excited, then tell them that and help them fix it so you can get excited. Because the only thing you can have in this game is, you know, the mindset to be successful. It all starts there. And if you don't have it, you've already lost and you're probably not going to kill it. So like, Focus on that first. That's the foundation for your year. Then get after it. And if it's not in the cards, figure out a way to find it. Go somewhere else, transition to a different role, ask for a different type of responsibility. Find something where you can find it again if you've lost it, for sure. For sure. I love it. 
I'm ready to run through a wall. I'm ready to get on the phones right now. (laughs) Then the, uh, then on the manager side, I would just say, you know, um, don't do anything stupid. Don't let your manager down and don't give up. So like one key, key thing that I probably didn't touch on that's super important is if you're trying to grow inside of an organization, that's your goal and you're ready for it and you, and you can check those boxes or those other things that I mentioned, you have to do a couple of things. One, Company's got to be growing as well. If the company's flat, you're probably not going to have a spot to go. So for you to grow, the company has to be growing. Remember that. The second thing is hit your wagon to a star. So who above you is rising? That is they rise can bring you along with them. And have you identified that person? Are they, have they seen something in you? Because when you're, you're making it from I see a manager, manager, director, director to VP, whatever. Somebody is going to have to fight for you. And the question you should ask yourself is, who at the company I'm at right now, who's going to fight for me? If you're super ambitious, you want to grow. If your answer is nobody, you know, I'm remote. I just started here eight months ago. No one knows who I am. Well, go solve that problem because it's going to be one. Uh, go solve it. Go reach out to people that you respect inside the company. Go help them understand what it is you're doing or, or, or how you can add value. But don't just sit there because uh, if you don't have those things, even if you're great, you, you may not have somebody that can pull you along. So keep that in mind. I love it. That's great advice. Um, and where can folks reach out to you, uh, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or otherwise? Uh, I'd say best is uh, best is probably Twitter. Uh, it's my name at Ray Carroll five, five. That's two R's and two L's and Carol. Um, or you can hit me on LinkedIn, but Twitter's probably best for just like quick micro interactions. That's great. Ray, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. This is awesome. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Enjoy it, everybody. Take care. See ya. All right, everybody. Happy March. Thank you for listening to that episode while you're walking the dog or doing your laundry or prospecting, whatever you're up to. Uh, please head over to Apple, leave a review, five-star review. Helps me grow the show. Uh, hit me up on LinkedIn, Tom Malamo, uh, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Tom McTahoe. Peace.